You know, uh, <clears throat> Christmas time is really tough for a lot of pastors. In fact, uh, when they get together, you'll often hear them talking about it. They'll say, you know, there's really only three or four chapters in all the Bible that really talk about the details of Christ's birth and what surrounded that. It's pretty much Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke chapters 1 and 2 as well. And so, maybe if you came to Christ 10 years ago and you've been coming to church for 10 years or so, obviously many much longer and some shorter, but let's say that it was 10 years ago and and every Christmas season, you've heard four Advent messages and then a fifth Christmas Eve message. Well, you've probably heard about 50 sermons. Think of that. 50 sermons just on those four chapters. You probably know that story pretty well. But here's the thing. While there are only about four chapters that deal with the specifics of it, there are many, many places in Scripture that talk about the why, the who, and the what of Christmas. Many places that talk about why Jesus came, uh, who he really is, and, and what he offers to you and me. And so this Christmas, that's what we're doing for these three weeks leading up to Christmas Eve uh, we're talking about the why, the who, and the what of Christmas. Now, uh, last weekend we jumped in in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to continue there today. If you have a Bible of your own, just feel free to find that passage. In just a few minutes, we're going to start there with Colossians 1, verse 15. But it's one of those passages that really addresses, right there in that one chapter, the why, the who, and the what of Christmas. Now, just a quick word. If you weren't with us last weekend, I just want to say that you may want to go online and listen to that message. And here's why I say that. You know, I, I, I've preached so many thousands of messages in my life, and you know, you, you can't even keep up with them, really. But I, I got to tell you, occasionally you get a lot of positive feedback from a message, and, and I was just amazed last weekend at how much positive feedback there was on that particular message. It actually shocked me because I, I didn't for some reason expect that on that message. But for some reason, God used it to, to hit a nerve uh, and to really minister powerfully to people through his word. So you may want to go online and listen to that as we talked about why Jesus came. And we said he came, this is right out of Colossians, for three reasons, to qualify us to receive his inheritance. He came to rescue us from the dominion of darkness, and he came to redeem us. That is, he wanted to give us forgiveness of sin. So you may want to go and listen and watch that message so you can kind of get the foundation of where we've been so far. But today, let's turn our focus to this question, who Jesus is. What an important question. Who is this baby lying in a manger? Who is this bronze Galilean? Who is this man hanging on a cross who says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
And today I want to break the message down into basically three questions. And the first one is this. You can dive in here on your notes if you'd like to jot some things down. Who do people think Jesus is? Kind of an interesting question, I think. Because there's always a lot of opinions. If you'd been on the street in the first century, you might have gotten a number of opinions. If someone knew the Old Testament scriptures, they might have said like things like, well, he's Emmanuel, God with us. Or if they really knew their Old Testament, they might have said, he's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, of his kingdom and reign, there will be no end. Or if you're really tuned into current events, you might have heard the word on the street that an angel had appeared to Joseph and said, Joseph, don't divorce Mary because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And the angel said to Joseph, you're going to call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. Or if you had met one of the Magi who had come from the Far East, you might have heard them say, where is this one born king of the Jews? Who is Jesus? It was an important question then. It's an important one now. Later in adulthood, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming. You can read about this in John's Gospel, chapter 1. And he said made this declaration when he saw him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As far as John the baptizer was concerned, that's who Jesus was. What about the people who heard him in his own day? Some who heard him said, He's a prophet. One rich young ruler who had been observing Jesus determined He's a good teacher, and that's the way he approached him. Good teacher. But not everybody felt positive vibe. There were religious leaders who got around Jesus, and after talking with him and spending some time with him, their hearts were cold. And they said, he's Beelzebub. That's who he is. You want to know who this guy is? He's Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. And they were determined to do him harm. Once when the disciples were in a boat with Jesus and a ferocious storm almost tipped the boat, they were afraid for their very lives and Jesus awakened from a deep sleep and said, peace, be still. And the very storm was calmed. The disciples then said, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Once Jesus took his disciples to an idol-infested place called Caesarea Philippi. I say it was idol-infested because idol worship was so common. In fact, there were statues there to various idols, various deities that represented false gods. And Jesus, while there, asked his disciples a poignant question. Who do people say I am? What's the word on the street, guys? I mean, what, what, what's the basic word on social media here? That would be the equivalent of today, what he was saying. And they said, some say John the Baptist. Some say Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the prophets. 
Jesus turned the focus to them. He looked them all in the eye. What about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, of course, gave that classic response. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. I find it interesting that Simon Peter said living God. I think he was contrasting it with the place where they were. All of these idols, all these dead gods as represented by these statues. And even at Christ's trial, there were questions about his identity. If you've read the Passion Narratives, you know that Pilate actually pressed Christ as to who he was. He said, are you the king of the Jews? And after seeing the resurrected Christ before him, Thomas, who had been a doubter, said, my Lord and my God. (laughs) Those are just a few of the conclusions that were kind of on the street in the first century about who Jesus was. And as you can see, there was a good bit of confusion then, just as there is today. But make no no mistake, this is an important question. One's identity is important. It's important that we know who we are. You may recall a number of years ago, George Bush Sr. was president and was campaigning for a second term. Uh, As you may recall, he came up a bit short in that election. But as he was on the campaign trail, he went around to a nursing home to talk to the people, and he was campaigning. He walked up to one lady, and he said, hey, what's your name? She said, my name is Mary. He said, well, good to meet you, Mary. And he tried to have a little conversation. He said, do you know who I am? She said, no, but if you go to the front desk, they'll be able to tell you. (laughs) Our identity is important. We get wrapped up in it, but the identity of Christ is even more important. Important. What would you say is the word on the street today? Who do people say Jesus is? You know what? There are actually a few people who insist that Jesus never existed. Pure fantasy. Christians made him up. He never really existed. (laughs) Now, I don't know how that strikes you, But if you're aware of the historical evidence for Christ, there's more evidence for the existence of Christ on earth than for any human being in the last 2,000 years. More manuscript evidence, more evidence from writers, thinkers, people who commented on him, people from his very time period. I meet other people today who would totally deny that. They know that that's too far-fetched to say he never existed. But they go to this place with who Christ is. They say, look, he, he was ahead of his time. He was a good man, a sage, no doubt a wise sage. And he certainly did a lot of good things. But you know what? They're probably trying to be complimentary when they say those things, but those things, if you stop there, are actually an insult, insult to the character and the claims of Christ, to say that he was a good man, but nothing more. What would you say 
Talk to a Christ follower today, and there are many all around you. If you're here to kick the tires and wonder what Christianity is about, if you're here to window shop Christianity and you're trying to figure out what this is all about, I wish you'd strike up a conversation with a Christ follower somewhere around you, and he or she will say, Jesus is my Savior, he's my Lord, he's forgiven all my sins. You know what? He actually adopted me into his family And if you talk to a real Jesus follower, they'll be just about as amazed by this as anything. They'll say, you know what? He's actually changing me from the inside out. He's making me a very different person than I was. Oh, I'm still very very much in process. I'm not what I'm going to be, but thank God I'm not what I was. And I hope you'll take the time to talk to someone about Christ because he is the very center of their life. Well, we've asked that interesting question, what do people say, but I wanna ask now what is definitely, undoubtedly, a much more important question. Who does God say this baby is in the manger? Who does God say Jesus is? In other words, put it a different way, what does scripture reveal about the nature of Christ? Well, here's where we really dive into today's passage. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. If you have a Bible open, I urge you to follow along, or you can follow along on the screens. Notice what Paul writes. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Notice there is definitely an invisible world, says Paul, that we don't even see with our human eyes, just as surely as there is a visible world. In fact, if you're curious about this, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, The things that we can see in this visible world are temporal, but the things in the invisible world we cannot see are eternal. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created. Catch this now, really important. You won't read this in the manger scene story. You won't catch this in Matthew or Luke's account necessarily of the details. All things were created by him and for him. We tend to think we're the center of the universe. This says that Christ is. All things were created for him. So in other words, it's not about me. And quite frankly, it's not about you either. It's about him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's literally the glue holding the universe together to keep it from breaking apart. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now, you may feel just a tad today like you're in a seminary classroom because this is a rather heavy passage. In fact, this study, this area of study is called Christology. 
If you went and got a master's or a doctoral degree in theology, you would, you would no doubt study around the whole discipline called Christology. It's really what we're covering. Why did he come? Who is Jesus? What does he offer? What are the claims of Christ? What are the beliefs about him? And I just want you to know that the passage we're about to unpack that we just read is the grandest, the grandest Christological passage in all of Scripture. So let's look at it. And even though it could be highly theoretical if we let it, I'm going to do my best to make it as practical as possible. Verse 15 says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This God, whom no one can see, became flesh so everyone could see up close. Charles Wesley put it like this a couple hundred years ago, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. So the invisible God pressed himself into the clay of humanity so that the second person of the Trinity could show us how to live. Jesus is the visible, physical revelation of the invisible God. Jesus is God in flesh. In fact, he said in John 14, verse 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I told you I was going to try to make this practical as possible, but I want you to know how significant that statement is. Some of you may be on a journey. You may be wondering who Jesus is, really. And so this topic is totally apropos for you right now. You're on a search. Honestly, you really want to find the truth. Bravo. You're in a good place, I believe. I know that God is going to guide you as you continue to probe this subject. But let me tell you something. The Bible says in Romans 1 that you can look at creation and it'll tell you something about God. It'll tell, tell you something about his divine power and his attributes, and that is absolutely true. You can see something about the, the power of God to design a creation as intricate as this. But can I, can I also follow up on that and tell you what you cannot get from looking at creation? You cannot understand the personality of God by just looking at creation. Something about the power, you can't. But something about the personality, nah, not much. But when you look at Jesus, Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you look at Jesus, you can see something about the very personality of God. You can see his compassion. In the Gospels, we see that regularly he stopped and ministered to hurting people, people who are desperately in need. You can see his compassion. And God Almighty is compassionate just like that. You can see something about the forgiveness of God. As he, Jesus knelt beside a woman who was about to be executed by a group of men who had caught her in an immoral act. And at one point he said, where are your accusers? She said, nowhere. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. How compassionate Jesus was. He showed this woman amazing 
compassion at her point of greatest need. You can see something about God's forgiveness in Jesus as he taught us that we're to forgive not three times, as one of the disciples suggested, but 70 times seven. And you can see something about the patience of God. As you look at the prodigal son's father in Luke 15, who patiently waits for his son to return. I'm telling you today that this Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas shows us the very personality of God. Paul goes on to say here that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now, what does that mean? Firstborn in Scripture, that word, and it appears twice in the passage that we looked at, it usually means of utmost importance. He's the most important figure in all of creation. John puts it like this in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And then he goes on to say, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Are you wondering today who Jesus is? If you are, you need to get serious about a little Christology. And it's all over the New Testament, all over the Bible. Consider this passage in Romans 9, verse 5. Paul writes, Christ, who is God overall, not just a baby in a manger, God. Still wondering who he is? Colossians 2, verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Still wondering, still curious about who Christ is? The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1, verse 3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. The writers of Scripture are saying, Jesus didn't, didn't have his beginning at Bethlehem. That was just his incarnation. Jesus was there in the beginning. Colossians 1.16 reads, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. What a statement. For in him all things were created. Now, we don't talk too much about that in December. We tend to see Jesus in his humanity mostly, this tiny defenseless baby lying in a manger, and there's certainly some good in that. We need to. We've got to understand this hypostatic union of Christ. But make no mistake, he's the creator of the world. In the beginning, in Genesis 1, God didn't say, let me make man in my image. He said, let us. Because the second and third persons of the Trinity were there as well. Now, I promised you I'd try to get practical because, boy, your head can be spinning pretty quick with this stuff. I told you this is the most sublime. This is the grandest Christological passage in all of the Bible. So, so 
What can encourage you and me about this? Can I just tell you a couple of things that I hope will be encouraging? This Jesus, this creator, this being who's more than we can wrap our minds around, Scripture says, if you're a Jesus follower, I I don't know if you can handle this, but here's what it says. It says he's in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wow. And when he was on earth, he showed power over his creation, and he can demonstrate his power in your life as well. When he was on earth, he cast out demons because he had created angels before they fell, these angels who fell. So, of course, he had power over them. He cursed a fig tree once, and it withered. Why? Because he was the maker of the fig tree. He said to a storm, peace be still. How could he do that? Because he was the maker, the creator of the weather. He touched fish and grain and it multiplied. Why? Because he was the author, the maker of it. He rode once on a colt, on a donkey who had never been broken, never been trained, and it went where he wanted him to go. How could he do that? Because the one who was commanding the donkey was the maker of the donkey. And he actually raised the dead to life because he's the author of life and the Lord of creation. Paul goes on in verse 17 and says, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. Now such incredible claims as this The ones Jesus made about his own identity, if they weren't true, would be ludicrous, bizarre, and make no sense. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. At another time, he said, I'll be crucified, but in three days, I'll come back from the grave. Sure you will, Jesus. I and the Father are one. The words that I speak, Jesus said, have been given to me by my Father, All that belongs to the Father is mine. And then in John 5, 18, it says his enemies were determined to kill him because he was making himself equal with God. I think maybe Doubting Thomas said it best when he doubted no more. When he saw the risen Christ, he said, my Lord and my God, And notice that Jesus didn't rebuke him at that point. He didn't say, no, wait a minute, Thomas, you're going too far. I mean, I'm a a good man everything. I may be an okay teacher and all that, but, oh, Lord, God, come on, dude, get a grip. No. In fact, Jesus commended Thomas. He said, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. And Colossians 1.18 Paul says he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. It's exciting to me to know that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. 
because I have no hope for any organization, <laughs> ultimately, that does not have God at the helm. Jesus Christ is the head of his church. You say, but pastor, but make it, make it practical for me. The implications of these passages are staggering. If Jesus made me, guess what? He can remake me. Do you need a, do you need a radical makeover? Anybody need a makeover? Jesus can remake me. If Jesus holds all things together in the universe, guess what? He can help that single parent hold it together in her home this week when she feels like it's all falling apart. And he can help you and me keep it together when life seems to be splintered. If he's superior to every kingdom and principality, guess what? He is more than adequate to handle your challenge this week with that crotchety boss, those troublesome employees, those nitpicky co-workers. He's got it. He's got your back. He's got it under control. And if he's the creator and if he's really in control, guess what? I can trust his plan for my future. He already knows the future. He's been there, done that. He sees it all. I can trust him. And if he's the first to rise from the dead, and this passage said he is, that means that he's the first to rise and never die again. Because a number of people had risen from the dead only to die again. But he rose never to die again. That means that one day, those who are in Christ will do the same. We will be resurrected to eternal life. We've talked about who people say he is. We've talked about what scripture says, who God says he is. But I want to wrap up today with a third question which in many ways is, of course, the most important question of all. And that is, who do you say Jesus is? By the way, that is the most important question you'll ever be asked. No, really, it is. Because you, when you stand before God one day, and you will, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We're all going to be there. Listen, the question that matters is, who is Jesus to you, and what did you do with him? Did you shut him out? Did you reject him? Or did you embrace him and yield and surrender your life to him and trust him alone for your salvation? As I wrap up today, I just want to give you what I think are three possible responses. No, these aren't the only ones, but this to me kind of represents the waterfront of responses to Jesus. First of all, you can be like the innkeeper. Oh, I, I know the innkeeper isn't really mentioned. I get it. I've looked for him, actually, because we talk about him, but he's not really in the Bible. But he's implied, right? Because there was no room for them in the end. So the end definitely had an innkeeper. Trust me on that. And apparently, he was pretty insensitive to Joseph and Mary and didn't really care much about this baby about to be born. He probably would have done more, perhaps, but the innkeeper's response was basically to ignore 
Jesus. He ignored him. He didn't want the trouble. He didn't want to deal with it. Life was too hectic. And he just decided that he would ignore Jesus. That's one possible response. But a second possible response is to do what Herod did. You remember that after these wise men came from the east, Herod kind of got an interest in Christ. Oh, I know we believe his motives were evil, but he at least had a curiosity. And by the way, Herod, as you may know historically, was a maniacal man. He had killed three of his sons because he saw them as a threat to his throne. He had had wives killed. He would put people to death at the drop of a hat if they thought uh, they were... They were against him in some way. He was a power-crazy, paranoid, some would say even possessed leader. And his response to Christ was interesting. After the wise men came, his curiosity was piqued, and he began to explore Christ. He began to explore Christ. And I suppose that's an option today. You can ignore Christ like the innkeeper. You can explore him like Herod did. But then there's the wise men and the shepherds. They heard the message of who Jesus was, and they beat a path to him. And when they got there, guess what? They fell down and adored him. You're faced with the same three choices. Like the innkeeper, you can ignore him. Like King Herod, you can explore him. Like the wise men and the shepherds, you can fall down, open your heart, and adore him. Which is it going to be for you? What is your choice going to be? No one can make that choice for you. No one can stand in your place and say, I'll choose for her, I'll choose for him this. No, you have to make it. I have to make it for me. This is where we all stand as individuals before God. What is your choice going to be? I want to end this sermon today in a really unusual way for me. I've hardly ever done this. But I'm going to ask you to just take a few moments of silence and reflection. And here's the question I want to pose to you as we do. And then I'm going to pray. I'll just, I'm just going to, going to pray after that, that moment of silence and reflection. I want you to listen to God's whisper. I want you to listen to the nudging, to the impulse of God. And I believe he'll put something in your mind, some impulse, some idea, something that he wants you to take away today. And so let's take a few moments of silence and reflection, and I want you to just listen for what God would want you to take away from today's message.
Father, there's an awful lot packed in this passage. So many grand ideas. Our minds struggle to stretch that far and try to comprehend. We don't often think of Jesus in the terms that this passage today describe him. But Lord, we know we need to. And I ask today that whatever you whispered, whatever impulse, whatever message you might have given to each individual, that this would be the moment they would decide to act. Thank you for who you are. And thank you that you've revealed it to us. Thank you that you're a loving, compassionate God and that you care deeply about us and what we're going through. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.